We're back to the book of Job. We're in chapter 11 tonight. We are looking at Zophar's zeal. Easy for me to say, Zophar's zeal. Uh, I want you to hold a place in Job 11 and turn over to John chapter 2. John 2, and then we'll be in Romans 10. I'm going to kind of set the table with the word zeal so we can have an understanding of where we're going with that. So John 2, go ahead and find your place there. Hold a place in Job 11, and I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the folks that have come out on this beautiful night tonight. Thank you for the youth. Thank you for uh, just everything that happened last week with Vacation Bible School, the impact on the kids the many incredible volunteers that made that happen. And Lord, tonight we're just hungry to know you better. We're here because we want to know you. So may your presence be here powerfully. May your glory be on display. As we study your word, Lord, may your word be imprinted in our souls, not just so that we hear the word, but that we can act upon it, that we can actually obey what you say. And tonight as we look at another difficult chapter in Job's life. Another uh, poor comforter who uh, his speech sounds pretty good until we really break it down. I pray that you give us zeal for the right things, zeal to bring hope and comfort and love and the truth of the gospel to others. So tonight, Lord, have your way. Lead us by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to your church. I pray in Jesus' name. And if you agree, say... Amen. In John chapter 2, early in Jesus' ministry, he cleansed the temple for the first time. He cleansed the temple two times in his earthly ministry, one at the beginning and one at the end. John chapter 2 records the first cleansing of the temple, and John records these words in John 2.13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. Jesus made a scourge of cords, John 2.15, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. Everybody note the word zeal there in, for, in verse 17. Zeal for thy house will consume me. Now I want you to flip over just a few books to the right to Romans chapter 10. We do know that the apostle Paul, when he was Saul before he met Jesus, had, a, had great zeal. He says, uh, as you turn to Romans 10, this is from Philippians 3, 6, and 7. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then Romans 10.1, now Paul is a preacher of the gospel. He's trying to reach Gentile and Jew with the good news of Jesus. And he says this about the Jewish people. He says, brethren, Romans 10.1. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have what? They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You could say that Paul had redirected zeal. You might say, Pastor Michael, what is zeal? Zeal is a word that you could say is passion. In fact, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word zealous can also be translated as jealous. It's the same word in Hebrew and Greek. It just depends on the context and what you're talking about. So if we, for example, if we were jealous in the worst sense, like we're just a jealous, envious person, we, we want to lay claim to what doesn't belong to us. That's the wrong kind of jealousy. But if we were jealous, for example, as Paul was in Acts 17, for the honor of God as he saw a city swimming full of idols, and he was jealous 
for the glory of God. He wanted God to receive the glory and not, not the idols. If you are jealous in the best sense, in the right sense, it's because you don't want your spouse cheating with somebody else because they belong to you in covenant. That's a legitimate jealousy. By the way, God is a jealous God. Now, not in an unhealthy way or a wrong way, but God is jealous for us. Why? Because he wants our exclusive love because he knows that's what's best for us. So jealous and zealous are similar in terms of, uh, it's the same word, but let me just give you this from the Hebrew uh, picture language, and it's uh, the Hebrew word pictures, and Dr. Seekin says, when referring to God, the word kana in Hebrew, the word for zealous or jealous, uh, is applied one way. He says the root word means to become very red. It, it means this, what follows the strong action is a red face, either by activity or emotion. This fit, fits the image of zeal or jealousy. He says we protect our nest. Love does not envy or control, but some things love does not share. Ask any spouse who has been cheated on if they believe in sharing. And so he goes on to say that this particular word has to do with strong passion. So as you turn back to uh, the book of Job, chapter 11, I want to ask you from the outset, what are you zealous for? What are you most passionate about in life? What makes you, what causes the strongest reaction from you? What are you most passionate to pursue in your life? I would say to you that that probably says a lot about you. It says a lot about your life, a lot about your uh, trajectory in life. What are you most zealous about? I think that zeal can change. What I was zealous about years ago has completely changed. What I used to chase, what I used to be so concerned about, what used to turn my face so red, <laughs> doesn't quite do that anymore. Now, there are some things that still do that, like my, fa my favorite baseball and football teams. If they're playing poorly, yes, there's a redness. It's not quite as red as it used to be, right? Maybe. But anyway, but here's the point. What are you passionate about? What are you chasing? What is most concerning to you? Well, Zophar was passionate about something, and his passion is going to come out in Job chapter 11 as he tries to put Job in his place with a speech. Here's how it goes. Zophar the Namathite, Job 11.1, 1, answered. Now, Zophar the Namathite, if you've been studying the book of Job with us, is our third speaker that responds to Job's situation and Job's speeches. Some believe that he was the youngest because he's the last to speak of these three and because he only delivers two speeches in the entire book of Job. I'll remind you that when these three comforters decided to come, these three friends, they traveled, they made plans, and they came to Job, Job 2.11, to sympathize with him and comfort him. But I would tell you that they widely missed the mark with their stated goal. Because if they truly had come to sympathize with him and comfort him, their speeches would not have taken the path that they took. And I think we all could agree that sometimes we have good intentions going into a situation. Like, for example, maybe we rehearse a speech or we've decided to approach somebody with a gentle and humble spirit, and then they open their mouth, and then our speech completely changes. Ever been there before? My intention was to go here. This is what I wanted to say. This is how I wanted to say it. And then they say something, and you're like, oh, let me tell you something. And all of a sudden, it goes out the window. And I would tell you that these three so-called comforters widely missed the mark in what they were trying to accomplish in the life of Job. And I know that there's some of you that are listening to my voice right now that have experienced this before, that you go with this intention and then you find another law in your members that is in your flesh causing you to do the same old thing that you used to do or you've done the last 25 times. What can make the difference? You might ask. I'll tell you what makes the difference. 
It's who's in control. See, why do you have zeal for that particular thing? Why do you have to take the stand with a certain body language or posturing or uh, tone that you take? Is it for your glory or for God's? Is it for the best of that person or for you? Well, Zophar the Namathite starts to chime in. He is going to answer Job. And if you've been with us, Job has been uh, asking all kinds of questions about God. He, he has questions for God, questions about his situation. And uh, he said a lot of things that are hard. But they are legitimate given Job's situation. And so here is Zophar in his zeal. And he says these words. Shall a multitude, Job 11.2, of words go unanswered? And a talkative man be acquitted? Job, loose translation, you talk too much. You ever thought that? You ever said that to somebody? <laughs> Maybe you've said it to yourself. I don't know. Job, you are a verbose individual. Literally, the Hebrew means you are a man of lips. How do you like that? A lot of lips. <laughs> a lot of talk. You've been talking and talking and talking for two chapters. Somebody's got to stop you. Man, Job, I'm tired of you flapping your lips and giving us lip. In Zophar's mind, he's waited long enough to chime in, and he gives Job the shh. Let somebody else talk, would you please? And I think we've all been there before. And so Job... Uh, is done and Zophar chimes in. But what's Zophar's motive? Is it to comfort Job? Is it to encourage Job? Is it to sympathize with Job? James 1.19 says, let each one of us be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to what? Anger. I ask you, how many of us if we were to go into a dialogue with James 1.19 in our pocket, would approach a lot of things differently. Let each one of you, James 1.19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James goes on to say in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, for we, teachers, will incur what? The stricter judgment. We have to be careful when we start pontificating and thinking that we are the teacher of teachers that we don't get ourselves in trouble. And I say that because we are told to share truth, but we're to share it in love and with gentleness and respect. Each one of us looking to ourselves lest we be tempted. And it seems that Zophar, I don't know if he's a young guy, inexperienced. It seems like all of these were well-known uh, men of wisdom He's going to get himself in trouble. But he says to Job, shall your boasts, or your bad in Hebrew, B-A-D, should your boasts silence men? Shall you scoff and none rebuke? If you have an ESV, it says, should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? If you have an NIV, will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will one rebuke you when you mock? I've had enough, says Zophar. I've had enough of your babble, enough of your lip. I'm going to chime in and say something. Now, there's maybe been times in all of our lives when we did that, when we put the stop sign up, when we said to somebody, talk to the hand. You're not talking anymore, right? And we chimed in, and maybe it was a legitimate time. I think there are, there are times when we have to say to somebody, that's enough. That's nonsense. You need to stop. But maybe there's been other times in our lives when we did that and we didn't let somebody finish. We didn't let somebody really articulate what they were feeling. We just, have you ever been there before? You're just thinking of your response and you're not even listening to the person. Zophar is fired up. He considers what Job is saying as babble, idle babbling. One writer says, In ancient times, the silencing of an opponent in a verbal dispute was tantamount to proving one's own case. Zophar is accusing Job of using this tactic. But Zophar is saying it's not going to work. Zophar 
believes that he is the man to expose Job for his mockery and his boasting. Now let me ask you, those of you who have been studying the book of Job, is Job boasting and mocking? I don't think so. I think what Job is doing is wrestling with deep, profound questions about why what is happening to him is happening at all. And what he's getting from his friends is canned, philosophical and theological answers that sound good until you realize that each of these men don't know what they're talking about because they don't know what's going on in the heavenlies. And what's going on in the heavenlies is that God has been boasting that there's nobody on the earth like Job. That God is proud of him. That he's a man of integrity. That he's blameless. And that the only reason that this happened is because Satan is attacking Job and God has allowed it for his divine purposes. When Paul was in Athens, Greece, he was up uh, sharing with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, Acts 17, 18, as they were conversing with him, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? They said this about Paul. Others were saying, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Sometimes when people may hear you try to articulate the Christian faith, that's what they want to do. They, they think it's a bunch of babble. They want to marginalize you because you quote the Bible or you quote a Christian worldview. Don't be surprised if that happens. But that doesn't mean that what you, don't what you have to say doesn't have substance, amen? It just means that maybe they don't want to hear it. Or maybe they just want to hear themselves talk. An idle babbler was slang in Athens, Greece. It meant a seed picker. It's a Greek word called spermalagas. It means that one is walking around like a bird in a barnyard, chirp, 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 and they just pick up seeds and put them down and pick them up. And, he, and the Athenians said, that's what Paul is. He's just a seed picker. You think you've been called some bad names before? You ever been called a seed picker? <laughs> that's what they were calling him. He's a seed picker. He just parrots ideas of other people. He picks them up and... Chip, 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 chip. <laughs> that wasn't Paul at all. In fact, if you sat down and had dinner with Paul, you would probably note that he was incredibly educated. He was in incredibly educated in both uh, Greek uh, education and, and philosophy and in the Hebrew law. This guy was an incredible mind. But that's all that the people of Athens could come up with. Chirp, 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 <laughs> right? And sometimes that's what people do. They try to mock you to marginalize you. Job, do you think that we are some empty-headed men that we're just going to let you go on and on and on and on without straightening you out? Well, Zophar had some, perhaps some legitimate concerns. Just to remind ourselves, take a few things. Take a look at a few things that Job has said, which are kind of troubling. Look at Job 9, verse 12. Job is speaking, he says, Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, to God, what are you doing? Look at uh, Job 9, verse 15. For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my job. judge. 16. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds, notice, without cause. Now remember, Zophar has been listening to this speech. He will not allow me to get my breath, 9.18, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, verse 20, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise or I loathe my life. Look at 22. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. I feel, if you guys were here with us, I feel like God is sucker punching me and then dancing over me when he knocks me down. Now remember I told you this is how Job feels. Job is not articulating Christian doctrine at a seminary. The dude has boils from the bottom of his feet 
to the top of his head. He probably has had a fever for months. He can't sleep at night. He has oozing boils and sores. Uh, maybe bugs are all over his skin. He's lost all ten of his children. Hey, Zophar, could you cut him a break? I mean, think about what he's been through. We have to have context when we talk to people, right? If you want to share the good news of the gospel and someone's just gone through a major loss, you may want to slow it and tone it down a little bit. Amen? You have to adjust. You don't ever change the gospel, but you have to at least be sensitive to where the person may be. Amen? Well, Zophar has heard Job talk and he's had it. Uh, go over to Job 10, look at verse 1. A little bit more so you can see where Zophar is coming from. He says, Job does, I loathe my own life. My soul loathes life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you to oppress? Now this is radical, right? To reject the labor of your hands. You made me, right? To look favorably on the schemes of the wicked. Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days the days of a mortal? Or your years as man's years? That you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. Zophar took note of that, surely. Yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Go all the way down to verse 18 in Job chapter 10. It says, Job 10 verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been, carried from womb to tomb. Verse 19, I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. 20, would he not let my few days alone withdraw from me that I might have a little cheer? Can you just cut me some slack? Cut me a break? See, this is what Zophar has been listening to. That's why he says what he says. He can't take any more of Job saying that he's on the moral high ground. Because in Zophar's worldview, the only thing that he can allow for is that Job's tragedy is a result of what? Of sin. That is Zophar's worldview. Job, this all has to have happened to you because you blew it big time. Remember, the thinking in, of the ancients was that anything that you reaped was commensurate with what you sowed. So, Job, you must have done some really bad things because you've reaped a whirlwind, literally caving in houses on your children and animals being taken away and people robbing your stuff. You have said, Job 11.4, my teaching is pure. Now, Zophar is addressing Job. I am innocent. In your or in God's eyes. NIV. You say to God, my beliefs are flawless. And I'm pure in your sight. Now Job didn't say that. Job did not say, my teaching is pure or my beliefs are flawless. Job is a man in misery. We cannot, this is why I've told you guys, you have to be careful when you read Job and Ecclesiastes that you don't pull your theology from people who are going through difficulty and are either disconnected from God, as in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has basically walked away from God, or you don't get your theology from the book of Job, where Job is in misery and asking questions about God. Everybody with me? You have to be careful when you uh, look at these books. And so he is saying, you've, you've made these claims. You said you're good. But all Job said was, I'm blameless. I am not going to confess a sin that I have not committed. I'm not going to make something up to satisfy you and your worldview. I'm not going to buy into what you believe has happened here because I know better. And God, of course, has confirmed that Job is blameless. And so Zophar says, five, but would that God might speak. You've been talking a lot. I would that God, verse 5, would open his lips against you. 
I would that God would give you a nice talking to, Job. Now, if the clouds open right now and God chimed in, who would be put in their place? Job or Zophar? Uh, I think Zophar would be in deep trouble. In fact, at the end of the book, God is going to say that these men have not spoken rightly. They've spoken without wisdom. But this guy's so confident. He thinks if the heavens open, Job would be corrected. But it would just be the opposite. I wish that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, 6. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets, note this, a part of your iniquity. Know then, ESV, that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. And all God's people said, ouch. Job, you're not even getting half what you deserve. Boy, I think he needs to go back and take some classes on grief counseling. Right? I think Zophar is falling a little bit short in the sympathy area. Right? If you really got what you deserved, God would have taken more away. Job might have said, like, what? What do I have left that he would have taken? But Zophar is now the proud one. He says, sound wisdom has two sides. And Job, you're only seeing one side of it. And you guys all know that when you're talking to people, there are three sides to every story. There's what the one person says, the what the other person says, and what God actually know, knows is true. And in this kind of idea of wisdom, it is true that there are certain things about the universe, about God, that we don't know everything. We have one side of it. I'm a human being. I've been on the planet some decades now. But as far as the universal knowledge that's out there, I have a little smidgen of it. And I'm going to die and end up in heaven with a little smidgen of wisdom and knowledge. I'm trying to grow in wisdom. Can I get a witness? Anybody else trying to grow in wisdom? But the more wisdom I take in, the more I realize I need to go and get more and more and more. Well, Zophar says, Job, you need to be straightened out. If you could just see both sides of the wisdom, uh, Pope writes, possibly wisdom is viewed as consisting of two sides, a revealed side manifest in creation and a hidden side which God keeps with himself. Which means when we end up in heaven, we're going to see a lot more than we know right now. We will know then as we are fully known, right? We're going to search the depths of the wisdom of God. And I don't believe that we'll ever fully be able to plumb the depths of the person and nature of God. That's what we have ahead of us. You guys, heaven is ahead of you. See, we, so many of us in America, we don't hear much about heaven anymore because we think that this is all there is. No, 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 no. What's ahead of you is going to last a lot longer than what's behind you. Praise the Lord. So, but Zophar goes on. He says, can you discover the depths of God? Seven. He's talking to Job now. He's, he's sounding a little proud, isn't he? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty or of Shaddai? They are as the heavens. What can you do? <laughs> Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Zophar wishes that God would speak right now, but Zophar would be put in his place because Zophar doesn't really know what he's talking about. You see, I'm sure that if God spoke at this moment, Zophar would be shocked. He's going on and on. Job, what do you know? At least Job is trying to plumb the depths of God honestly. Amen? I'd rather have somebody honestly wrestling with the big questions than just giving me platitudes. I'd rather have somebody talk to me and say, look, I'm legitimately wrestling with these things than just mail it in. And so Zophar is calling Job out. What can you know? What do you know? If he passes by, verse 10, or shuts up, 
or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. Now, if God passes by, verse 10, or he shuts up or shuts something down or calls an assembly, who could stop him? The answer is nobody. And then notice what he says. For Job, he says, God knows false men. What do you think Zophar is saying? And that's what you are. He's calling Job a phony, a liar, a hypocrite. Is Zophar right? No. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. You ever been called a phony? Ever had somebody call you a hypocrite? Ever had somebody accuse you of something that was wrong? I want you to put yourself in Job's sandals right now. How much more can one man take? How much more does he have to be beat up for some alleged sin that he has not committed? Have you ever prayed that? Maybe you've been there before and you've said, Lord, I don't know how much more I can take. Because the so-called comforters swoop in and then they make me feel worse. Lord, help me. And this is where Jesus can sympathize and empathize with our weaknesses because sometimes people mean well, but they don't always say things that help us. And they can even imply things, and this is more than an implication. Zophar calls Job literally a man of nothingness. That's the furthest from the truth of what Job is. Don't let someone define you by an accusation that they've made against you that's not true. Somebody out here needs to hear that tonight. Do not let someone define you for the rest of your life by an accusation that they leveled against you, which was false. And this is what hurts us, right? Words. You know, Job is going to say in this book, your words have destroyed me. Your words have hurt me deeply. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, it says, many believed in his name. They beheld the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he, Jesus, knew all men. Because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is the one that knows what's really inside here. And he still loves me. Oh my goodness. Can I get a witness? Anybody else out there amazed at Jesus' love for you? When you go through a given week and you know how many things have rotated in this brain that are not the most godly, right? He knows what's in me. He knows a thought before I think it, a word before I speak it. He knows my motives even when I try to fake it, right? Fake it until I make it. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> or in the book of Job, I don't know, right? But Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. Whenever you meet someone that's actually pure in their motives, let me tell you, it's probably going to be the exception and not the rule. Amen? Now, in the body of Christ, that's what we want to see. We want to see genuine people. How many of you are longing for genuine fellowship, genuine relationships, where it's not a show, it's not hypocrisy, it's not the church smile and the church language? Praise the Lord, brother, hallelujah. And then you go home and you're as mean as mean could be. Do you think that your spouse is impressed? That you put on your church face and then you go home and you treat them like trash? What is that? If that's your Christianity, you may want to revisit your heart. We can, we can make speeches all day long. Look, this is what I do for a living. I stand up behind a hunk of wood and I give sermons. But if my sermons don't at least have some semblance of my life, then I'm a phony. And that's the last thing I want to be. 
So I have to say regularly, even though it pains me, Lord, search my heart. And if there's any wicked way in me, show it to me. He says, verse 12, an idiot will become intelligent. (laughs) Highlight that one, would you? And an idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. Some of you are saying, say what? The NIV says, but a witless man can no more become wise than a wild donkey's colt can be born a man. An empty-headed man will be wise, New King James, when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. And the New Living Translation says, an empty-headed person won't become wise any more than a wild donkey can bear a human child. We might say it this way. You'll become smart when pigs fly. (laughs) What? I think that's what the Hebrews after, although it's a little bit difficult to translate. But here's Zophar. (laughs) Is Is he calling Job an idiot? Have you heard about the little kid who does say to his mother, Mommy, why is it that the idiots are out only when Daddy is driving? Yes. And so Zophar is saying, if this, if this translation is correct, Job, there's little hope for you. I think you're kind of a fool and a phony. Some of you can recall a moment in your past where you were sitting as an unbeliever, hearing the word of God, and a searchlight came into your heart, and it totally unmasked you for who you really were. Can you relate to this? I remember some years ago, I was sitting in a church as a non-Christian, and the preacher was preaching, and I felt like he had a copy of my diary. There was only one problem. I didn't keep a diary. And I had things hitting me like they were arrows from heaven. (laughs) Hitting hard. Not the most comfortable situation. But what it showed me was my need for God. You see, until you realize what your sin has done to you, you won't see your need for a Savior. But what sin makes you is it makes you a surfacey person. It can make you calloused. It can make you phony. It, it can make you driven only for me, myself, and I. So Zophar doesn't give Job must hope, much hope, but he does give him a prescription. Here's Zophar, the zealous, <laughs> the zealot. Here, here's his prescription. He says to Job, if you would direct your heart right... And spread out your hand to God, to him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Can you see Job? He's like, oh no, Lord, not again. Here we go again, another so-called comforter accusing me that I'm sinning against you. Help. And so Zophar's uh, prescription is Job... You need to turn your heart to God. Look at verse 13. When Hebrew people would spread out their hands, the lifting of the hands in worship, if you guys have ever wondered, why do people lift their hands in worship? The lifting of hands is actually in, the, in Jewish thought an expression of worship. So people are not doing that for no reason, just so you understand. When people reach up their hands, they're reaching out to God. They're saying, Lord, I'm not ashamed to to tell you. Think of it this way. I'm reaching for you. See, the lifting up of hands is an expression of, I need you, God, and I'm reaching for you with my prayer. And so just, um, you can just listen to some scriptures that relate to that. Psalm 28.2 says, Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Psalm 63.4 says, I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. 
Psalm 88, 9 says, I have spread out my hands to thee. Psalm 119, 48 says, I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. Psalm 141, verse 2 says, The lifting of my hands will be as the evening offering. Psalm 143, verse 6 says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Selah. Some of you, you feel like you want to lift your hands at times and you feel a little war on the inside. Right? Something in you just wants to go and something in you says, oh no, you can't go. And if you've ever seen Tim Hawkins, you know there's some churches where people are like this and some people are just kind of halfway and then some people are just wax on and wax off, and right? Hey, look, it's okay. Relax. See, it's, it's okay if you don't and it's okay if you do. And it's okay even if you get I'm right here. This is my zone. Where nobody, people can't see around me. When Moses was up on the mountain, he was too old to fight. So he sent Joshua down to fight against the Amalekites. Moses went on the top of the ridge. And as long as his hands were up to God, Israel prevailed. He had to have Aaron and Hur hold up his hands. And when his hands dropped, Israel began to lose to the Amalekites. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. This doesn't have to do with the posture. This is more about your heart. The more you're in touch with heaven, the more you're going to win battles against the Amalekites. The more you let your hands down, and I'm talking about now prayer, the more you're going to lose battles in your life. I'm finding more and more that the biggest thing I need in my life is the Lord <laughs> and His power. I just need to lean into Him to make it. I need to lean into Him to love the way He's called me to love. I need to lean into Him to worship the way He's called me to worship. My Christian life has taken on some simplicity. All I want is to know you better, Lord. I think you'll find if you do that, it'll simplify a lot of things. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all the other things will be what? They'll be added to you. But what do we do? We try to do all the other things and then maybe we'll seek first your kingdom. I mean last your kingdom. No. Just seek his kingdom and his righteousness and it'll take care of everything else. You may want to try that tomorrow morning. <laughs> And so he says, well, you need to redirect your heart, 13. You need to spread out your hands. You need to repent and pray. That's verse 13. And if your hands go up and there's iniquity in your hand, well, then you need to repent of that. Get it far away. Don't let wickedness dwell in your tents. Another barb from Zophar because Job's house is, uh, his children, the house fell in on them. He says, then if you would do this, you could lift up your face without moral defect. And you would be steadfast and not fear. Hey, Job, if you repent, well, then you could lift up your face to heaven and you wouldn't feel ashamed anymore like you've been feeling. You would forget, 16, your trouble as waters that have passed by. You would remember it. This would be like, uh, we would say, it'd be water under the bridge. Your misery would be behind you. Your past won't haunt you anymore. It's true, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But the truth of the matter is that we still have struggles and our past sometimes rears its ugly head, amen? And when it does, I love when Chuck Smith used to say that the old man is dead. He's in the, he's in the grave, but every now and then the hand comes up out of the grave. And you got to stomp it back down. You're dead. You have to reckon the old man to be dead. 
because you're alive in Christ. And the enemy will bring up some things and he'll say, that's not water under the bridge. You need to revisit that. And that's when you need to say, no, I am as holy as I'm going to be in God's sight right now because Jesus Christ paid for my sin debt in full at the cross. Amen? Yeah, you can clap for it. I'm blameless and unaccusable before the Father. But Zophar is saying, and your life would be brighter than the noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. So many people living in darkness right now. If Christ shines on you, you won't be there anymore. Then you would trust because there's hope. And you would look around and rest securely. Job, this season of darkness, if you would just repent, would cease. And let me tell you that Zophar is wrong because Job doesn't really have sin to repent of. But if you do, Zophar is right. Amen? Because if you have sin in your life right now and it's causing issues, then repenting of it would bring light into your life. So that's why you have to be careful with these speeches. I'm going to show you just one psalm and then we'll wrap this up. All right? So to your right, Psalm 37. Psalm 37, a psalm of David. You guys all know that David went through his tough times, his own sin, false accusations, you name it. He wrote a lot of the psalms in the midst of difficult seasons. And this is some wisdom from David. Psalm 37.1 says, Do not fret because of evildoers, 37.1. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. And he will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Back to Job, and we'll finish it. So, as Zophar closes his speech in this chapter, he says, you would lie down and none would disturb you if you just follow my advice. Many would entreat you. You'd be restored back to your favorable position in the community, verse 19, Job 11. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. There will be no escape for them and their hope is to breathe their last. As Zophar closes his speech, he says, Job, essentially, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, it's going to be ugly for you. But the truth is that Job doesn't need to repent. He just needs his Redeemer (laughs) to end the trial. But God has a divine purpose behind this trial. Part of it has been to encourage you that not all your suffering, not all your pain, not all your questions, not all the difficulties that you and I face in this life have to do with our shortcomings. We live in a fallen world. And things happen as a result of that. And sometimes we don't think the way we should and act the way we should And we lose people that we love. And sometimes we try to make sense of it. And the only way we're going to find our answers is in the face of our Redeemer, who entered into our pain and became our living hope. Jesus Christ is my hope in this crazy world we live in. Where I, I often feel like, as I watch emails and prayer requests and the latest News stories like an avalanche is coming at me, and I'm sure you feel that way as well. And the only respite or refuge I can, tell, I can recommend for you and me is Jesus, the anchor of my soul. You see, those who die without Christ, their eyes will fail. Verse 20, there's no escape if we neglect so great a salvation And there's only one hope, and his name is Jesus. And if you die without him, you will die hopeless. Don't do that. Jesus Christ is our hope. 
And we have that hope in us. The hope of glory. So the more we fix our eyes on our living hope, the more we can say, you know what? I'm, I can grieve, but not like one who has no hope. I'm going to fix my hope. Would you pray? I'm going to fix my hope completely on the revelation to be brought when Jesus Christ comes again. I'm not going to fix my hope, Lord, on the uncertainty of riches, but on you. I want to live my life for what really has substance, what really will last. And Lord, each of us in this room have many blessings to count. We have many things to celebrate, many gifts that you've given into our lives, but we also have things that hurt us and things that cause us grief and question marks. We cannot hide from those. But the good news that we have tonight is that you came into this world and said, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to come and rescue my bride. And so in this world, Lord, where there is confusion and questions, and sometimes we have people who come to us and it hurts us a little bit more, and sometimes the closest to us hurt us, and we have confusion, and we wonder what love is, as we've been studying on Sunday mornings. But you are love. And the more that we have you in our lives, dominating our lives, the more all these things will fall into place. Keep your head and heart bad. If you've not met Jesus as your living hope, he is available to you, but he's going to ask you to make a decision to trust him. Maybe for you it would be a rededication tonight. Maybe for some of you you've not made this first-time commitment to say, Jesus, thank you for entering into my pain. You might want to pray it right now if it's you. Thank you for taking my guilt and shame at the cross paying my ransom price, shedding your blood, suffering the way you did. Thank you that you defeated death, that death won't have the final word in my family, in my own life, that the end of the story has already been written. Lord, I turn my life over to you. I want to be an ambassador of hope to others. So just help me to lay down the things that so easily entangle and to run this race effectively as I fix my eyes on you, the author and perfecter of my faith. Lord, for those who have opened their hearts, those who have rededicated, those who may just be seeking to find some refuge and comfort in your presence, may you bless, may you pour out your spirit. We know you give grace a never-ending supply. You're always faithful to give it. All we have to do is ask, bring our little cup, and you'll fill it up. And I pray that each one would be filled up tonight with your goodness, with your love, with your grace, with your mercy. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Would you stand?